If you're a dog owner, safety and welfare for your pet is of utmost concern. But there are so many so-called experts out there that many of us don't know where to turn to to get the expert advice that we need. Welcome to Taming the Wild in Your Dog with noted dog expert and author Brian Bailey. In this program, we give you the tips you need to connect with your best friend with the most practical advice. Now, here is your host, Brian Bailey. You know, there's nothing worse than a dog that pulls you. I can't stand that. That is one behavior that I will work on first thing, right out the gate. What about you, Joshua? Well, says the man that does urban mushing, the dog that pulls. But, <laughs> That's uh, different. That's different. I like that kind of pulling. To pull yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about even that dog, my sled dog, I don't allow the pull right, right when right. we just walk. I, I can't stand that. It causes injuries. It also causes the dog to pull you into situations in which you, you shouldn't be there. So today in, in this episode, we are going to talk a lot about healing your dog or just simply teaching your dog to not pull you so you can enjoy your walk because again there's nothing worse when dogs come in here for training it's one of the first things that we work on otherwise we're getting yanked into door jams getting yanked into another room getting yanked to greet a dog that we really just don't want our dog to meet at that moment also later in the show we have tom shelby tom shelby is the author of dog training diaries proven expert tips and tricks to live in harmony with your dog. So we look forward to having Tom Shelby on. He's a veteran like myself, uh, 40 years plus of dog training and dog behavior. And he's going to be calling in today from Martha Vineyard. I've never been there. Have you guys, uh, you ever been to Martha Vineyard? No, no I never have. I wonder, what kind of yeah. Yeah. I wonder what kind of weather they're having today. It's a lot of snow up there. But let's get right into it, guys. First of all, when it comes to a dog pulling you, you're going to hear me say this over and over again, before you embark on attempting to influence the behavior of your dog, or really anyone for that matter, know what you're dealing with. Know that you're dealing with an animal. I, again, I get that sometimes we think that that's obvious, but trust me, I meet enough people to understand that it's not so obvious. You're not working with a person. You're working with a dog. And before you start to influence anything's behavior, you need to understand exactly what is the behavior of that dog. For instance, dogs, they're horizontally built creatures. Physically, they're able to travel great distances without energy expenditure at levels that we would never be able to match. We are vertical creatures. We burn tons of watts per hour simply just standing and trying to maintain our balance. But nature created an animal that's able to cover great distances over rough terrain without burning the same amount of calories that we would burn. They also have power in that horizontal structure. 60% of their power runs from their shoulders to the end of that muzzle. Designed to strike an animal, an animal that could be 30 times its own body weight. Imagine that. That's like you grabbing with your mouth an SUV and then throwing it in reverse, your whole body in reverse to pull this animal, stop its momentum. Because, of course, it's not saying, uh, uncle, I give. I'll just go ahead and lay down and die now. The second that wolf grabs the haunch of a large animal, it immediately does everything it can to stay alive. So it pulls forward as powerfully and as quickly as it possibly can. But there's those long canines sunk into the haunches. So they Throw it in reverse as strong 
an incredible power. You've got to see in real life. I've certainly seen it. And you just, it doesn't no good to even try and describe it. It's incredible the amount of power they have. And then another thing about our dogs, again, from their wolf heritage, they travel in single file lines. Why do wolves travel in single file lines? This is not a leadership issue at the moment. It's about safety. Typically, you'll find the older wolves, usually the mating pair, either in the very back of the line or in the very front of the line. It really just depends upon the terrain. For instance, if the terrain is wide open, then they will be typically found in the back because why? They're now like a shepherd and they have a flock called offspring. And they were able to keep their eyes on their offspring and corral them into a group and herd them into a certain direction. Just again, like a shepherd with a flock. But as soon as that terrain changes into something that obscures their vision, like a dense forest going over hills or going around the side of a mountain, you'll immediately see one of these wolves, if not both of them, move to the front. Because why? If we encounter danger, we're going to encounter it quickly. And who do you want to lead your offspring into danger? You or your children? So again, we can call a lot of resemblance to this to, to being a human being. So these are just some little things that you, you need to kind of understand. There's a reason why your dog moves out in front of you or a reason why your dog falls back behind you. There's a reason why when you pull back on your dog, which we typically do, just like instinct, all we want to do is reach up there and just yank back. Every time our dogs start to pull us, we pull in the opposite direction back along their spine. Now, when you're doing that, you might as well just take your dog to the gym because what you're in essence doing is providing resistance training to your animal. You're going with their power, north and south, from the tip of their nose to the tip of their tail. You facilitate their ability to pull even greater. And of course, you give that a little bit of time, a little bit more muscle power, a little bit of maturity, a little bit more size, and now we have a real problem. So that's an issue there. Also, the fact that when you try to pull the animal to your side, they don't get that. These are animals that have incredible spatial awareness. Remember, maintain that single file line, but don't make it too close. Stay a little bit away from my backside. I'll stay a little bit away from yours. You know, I love uh, Dr. Franz DeWall. Uh, he wrote a book here recently, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? And he reminds us that before he embarks upon conducting any sort of animal experiments, and he recommends to even us lay persons uh, uh, and people that, that aren't really working for large uh, academia type institutes, that we observe the same rules. Know what it is you're working with. In fact, he recommends that you spend over 2,000 hours studying the species before you embark upon trying to change its behavior. You know, I did a little quick math on that, and that turned out to be if you did that for eight solid hours a day, taking no restroom break, no lunch, that's over 280 days. That's a long time. Not that you're going to need to do that to teach a dog not to pull you, but taking that within the context in which it was said, know what it is you're working with. Because that certainly does help you. I would no more embark upon trying to fix my watch right now, the one that I'm wearing, if I don't have a clue as to how it even operates at, at the most fundamental and basic level. The other thing that you need to take into account, why would the animal change its behavior? 
I think way too often in training, we use that word correct behavior, right, Joshua? Yeah, absolutely. And what we're doing is, does the animal know that we're correcting the behavior? After all, if they're performing the behavior, to them it's correct. So I would rather use a term saying to influence their behavior. Not correct, not yet. Until you know what you're doing and you know what you're doing is incorrect, then you can't use the term correct. Now, I'm not playing word games. It's about creating a mindset. We want to influence the animal's behavior. We also have to understand, can we tease apart the roles of attention, motivation, and cognition? Because these are the reason why animals do everything they do. Why should I not pull you human? Why can't you simply just catch up with me? Why can't I go over and sniff or pee on this tree? Why can't you go with me? Why should I walk next to you when at a fundamental level of instinct, that's not correct. That's not what we canines do. Yes, Joshua. I, I was just—I was going to comment on on the term correction. You know that it very much implies that what they're doing is wrong, and that's in the eyes of of the handler. The dog doesn't really have a, a sense of right and wrong. They they go about their business based off of their experiences and what's worked for them. Yes, absolutely. You know, and, and I always tell everyone the default mechanism for all behavior is instinct. So that's the governing body right there. That's where it all starts from, and then after that. Our behavior and our dog's behavior can be described really as nothing more than our attempt to adjust to a change in our condition. So therefore, same thing with your dog. If your dog is pulling you, you need to motivate your dog not to pull you. And there's many ways to do that. I think that you have to take and try and use them all. And at some point, you do have to use them all. For instance, you can certainly try to entice your dog not to pull you by holding maybe a piece of cheese down by your leg. However, that may work great on one day, but on another day in which another dog is approaching at about 30 to 40 feet away, oncoming towards you in your direction, maybe the cheese doesn't work so well that day. Maybe the attraction of the other dog, whether the dog perceives the approaching dog as a threat or a possible friend. That overrides and suppresses the cheese. In other words, dog trumps cheese. So if that's the only method that you've used to entice your dog to walk next to you and not pull you, you will fail at that moment. So I always tell people, keep two words in your head at all times whenever you're trying to train a dog. One, cost. The other word, benefit. Cost versus benefit which means sometimes you have to apply a cost. You have to, meaning sometimes it's uncomfortable to pull you. So that leads me to my next point on pulling. Make sure you have the appropriate equipment. People use harnesses, as Joshua mentioned earlier in the show, I do urban mushing with my Siberian Husky. When I put him in a harness, he knows. He knows the word that is coming next, mush, and he pulls. But when I don't want to participate in urban mushing, and now pulling is undesired, he's in a compression collar, a compression collar that immediately, immediately compresses the very second he starts to pull me. 
that gives him a cost that is uncomfortable to him. And he has learned through my input and through his own self-discovery that if he pulls, well, I don't breathe too well. But if I fall back there next to Brian, not only is there a bunch of air back there and it's all for free, but now I get that treat. So again, weighing cost versus benefit. But I'm able to do that because I have equipment that can facilitate that ability. Next thing you need to do is give a signal. What word do you want to use? What visual signal do you want to use that will immediately stimulate the dog and evoke a particular response? I use the age-old word heel back in the days when dogs were made to walk behind us at the heel. Uh, it's lasted for many years, but you can use whatever you want. You can use scubernog for all I care. The issue is that you have to use it consistently. Every time you want your dog to return to your side, you must utter that word heal or give in conjunction with any visual signal that you would like the animal to learn and keep doing this all the time. You can't say heal one day. Let's go the next day. Come on. You, you get my point. It's a signal, like a red light. A red light evokes me to stop my car. It's a signal. So make sure you come up with a stereotype signal. And then pick a side. Pick a side. I always advise people, go with one side or the other. And if you're right-handed, I usually tell them, teach your dog to walk on the left side. Why? Think about it. If my dog is trained to walk on my right side, then every time I need to use my right hand, whether it be to greet someone, to sign for something, to open the door with a lock, to any sort of behavior that requires the use of my good hand, though my favorable hand, now I have to switch the leash to my other hand, typically the dog to the other side. And at that moment, I sacrifice control and it's just really inconvenient. And then lastly, start to think about your goals. What do, where do I need this heel to be at the end of the journey. Do I want a running partner? Am I someone that typically walks slowly? What is it that you want your dog to be able to do? For instance, I teach my dog to walk on my left side. I teach them that the word heel means take up a relative position to my body. And that is right by my leg. And when I first teach that, I simply work on dancing with my dog first, meaning if the dog goes left, I go right. And suddenly they come to the end of the leash and they go, hey, Brian, where are you going? I'm going this way. They go out ahead of me. I do a U-turn and go the other way. And after doing this for a few lessons, they start getting the idea that there's a need to keep an eye on Brian. There's a need to watch him, a need to be somewhere near his body. And of course, every single time they get to the end of that leash, I tell them heal. And then I start to advance that slowly, requiring more and more contact in the vicinity of me. Heel means get closer and closer and closer. And only after that am I now ready to embark on a good walk. So when you're first training this, get into a cul-de-sac, a large yard, a large park, somewhere you're unhindered, where you're not hindered by, uh, for example, a fence or someone walking behind you. You're able to dance with your dog. And then slowly start requiring your dog to take up the position as soon as you say the word. And it's not allowed to leave that position until it's given another signal to do so. 
And that can be anything, for example, free, okay, whatever it is. And at the very end, you'll have a dog that you enjoy walking. A dog that when it hears the word heal, it soon just responds like a biological reflex. I allow my dog on occasion when there's no one coming, there's no one around, just me and my dog. I'll say free right in the middle of a heel. And right in the middle of that heel, they'll go over, they can check the P-mail is what I call it. But as soon as I say the word heel, they come back. All right, guys, those are some tips on heel. We can talk a little bit more because I'm going to ask Tom Shelby how he trains the word heel. And he's coming up next. Tom Shelby, the author of Dog Training Diaries, Proven Expert Tips and Tricks to Live in Harmony with Your Dog. He's coming up and we have a whole bunch of questions we're going to ask him. Great book. Lots of training tips in there. So if you've got any, make sure you give us a call or if you want to ask any questions of Tom, call 866-472-5788. All right, we're going to cut away to a break. And when we come back, we'll have Tom Shelby on the air. Sit, stay. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. After years of waiting, there's a radio show for shotgunning enthusiasts worldwide. Tune into Marty Fisher's Wing and Clay Nation for the very best in wing and clay shooting talk. Join Marty and his guests as they bring you hunting and shooting information that you can use. So whether you're a beginner or a seasoned pro, this show can be your go-to source for wing and clay shooting information. Listen live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific for Marty Fisher's Wing and Clay Nation on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Taming the Wild and Your Dog. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email if you prefer to brian at tamingthewild.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. We have with us now Tom Shelby. 
Tom Shelby is a dog trainer, been doing it for, I believe, over 40 years. Uh, he specializes in search and rescue dogs, and he's the author of the book, Dog Training Diaries, Proven Expert Tips and Tricks to Live in Harmony with Your Dog. Tom, thanks for joining us. I thank you for being here. All right. Well, I read your book, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, real quick question, right out of the gate. You mentioned in there that you are a depends trainer, depends trainer. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit for our audience so they'll know? Sure. People have said to me very often, uh, what's your methodology? And my answer has always been, well, it really depends. My methodology for a German shepherd that bit two people and wants to eat my kneecap and dealing with that dog is going to be quite different from a chihuahua that's shaking in fear in a corner hiding or hiding behind the owner's legs. So the, the approach that I take really varies with the needs um, that are evident. Um, dogs all have different personalities like people, and you need to cater to what will work for that particular dog uh, under those particular circumstances and dealing with the, whatever the issues may be. Um, you know, so it really depends. Um, I, I, you know, there, there's no set methodology for any, any dog. It just depends on what's presented and what we have to deal with. You know, be it housebreaking or destructive chewing or, um, you know, as I've said to people, have you ever seen a seeing eye dog dragging his owner, um, the, the person without sight down the street chasing a squirrel? Of course not. Um, so, you know, a seeing eye dog is trained often very differently than, let's say, a, um, a dog uh, that is used um, to help soldiers in Iraq. So it just does depend, Brian. Yeah, in other words, a one-size-fits-all uh, methodology just doesn't apply. No, not even close. One size never fits all. Um, that, that's for sure. And, um, I, you know, I wrote this book with the experience. I literally had eight to 900 appointments a year training, all uh, recommended by word of mouth. And about 50% were for problematic um, issues. And uh, I absolutely loved what I did, and I wrote this book, Dog Training Diaries, um, because I've helped a lot of people, and I've had so many questions over the years. I wanted to answer a lot of the questions, and, and I wrote it. I have found many training manuals, per se, are somewhat... Uh, tedious. Um, so I didn't write it as a manual. I wrote it more in the form of parables, telling stories to make. Um, so if I'm teaching a dog to to heal, um, rather than saying dogs work professionally on the left side and take your first step with your left foot because that's the foot nearest to the dog, and when that foot moves, the dog understands it has to move. I taught it. I, I kind of wrote it in. Um, in a parable where I describe a lesson I had with a lady in Manhattan and teaching that dog not to pull for the lady and transferring the lesson to the lady. So it's, it's a lot more fun as I describe what actually happened during the lesson. Um, that's 
kind of how I wrote with lots of stories, and I appreciate your saying, Brian, that you enjoyed reading the book because, as I've told people, um, you may find reading the book is is uh, is somewhat enjoyable or quite enjoyable, actually. Um, I've had a lot of people, you know, somebody just commented to me the other day that one of his favorite lines in the book was when my wife said to me, why couldn't you have been a jeweler and brought that business home instead of these dogs? <laughs> um, <laughs> I might agree with you there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so hi, Kira. Um, Hello. Yeah, so it's that, or... I was um, on CBS in Boston. They interviewed me, and they appreciated. I had a lady who at one point said to me, you're, you're more expensive than my shrink. And I had bantered with her enough. I knew her well enough where I was able to say, yes, I may be more expensive than your shrink, but at least I'm getting results. Um, appreciate so, it. <laughs> so, well we, you know, I've had a lot of fun doing this, and I really wanted to share um, you know, so many of the questions, what is a dog rolling disgusting stuff? How do I stop the dog from, um, you know, eating my socks? Uh, I remember a golden retriever that had to be operated on twice um, to disentangle the uh, owner's stockings, which the dog had consumed and gotten tangled in his intestines. So, I mean, you guys over there, you know what I'm talking about, dealing with the same types of issues. Um, so I wanted to share um, what I have found worked with so many years of experience. Um, it really is predicated uh I mean, as as we get older, that's, I think, where the definition of wisdom comes in, which is predicated on experience. Um, and one of the things I, I stress a lot is socializing. Um, I use nine words, been there, done that, seen that, no big deal. When that is your dog's attitude, you have a socialized dog. Um, I had I was in Manhattan two to four days a week. I used to live about 20 miles north of Manhattan, and I had a couple that moved to Midtown uh, Manhattan from rural Alabama, and that dog was terrified of even leaving the apartment. It had never heard a fire engine go by with sirens screaming or being um, confronted with all the people and dogs on the street and a homeless person begging for some money, and that dog just started to refuse to go outdoors. So socializing and living on Martha's Vineyard, one of the things I say so often to uh, the clients that I meet there, and I say it facetiously, but um, there's validity to the, the concept, I tell them the first thing I want you to do is rent an apartment in Boston just for a couple of months and expose the dog to the world um, so that the dog has seen enough and experienced enough. His attitude has been there, done that, seen that, no big deal. Socialization is very, very important. Um, you know, if the dog is exposed to the whole world and nothing in the world bites the dog, it becomes much more stable. And, Brian, you're probably familiar with one of the most common causes of um, dog aggression, uh, dog-to-people aggression, is fear. Fear biting is one of the uh, 
most common forms of aggression. And the dog that ha- is extremely well socialized tends to be a lot less fearful. Um, granted, there can be a genetic component to the fear, but get the dog well socialized, then the attitude it becomes much easier to cope with new things when the dog is properly socialized. Yeah, would, would I, you I not agree. agree? Oh, absolutely, I agree. Uh, I always tell everyone, dogs and humans, again, you'll, you'll see me draw a lot of correlation because there's times in which we really do need to do that and other times we need to stay off of that road. But we thrive on the familiar. We absolutely thrive on the familiar. So therefore, anything that we are familiar with, whether it be a certain gesture or a certain signal, then we are willing to respond to that. Uh, there's an old business saying that the the human brain, when it's confused, it always says no. Uh, same thing with the animals. When they become unable to interpret a signal, they will either avoid the signal or they'll become fearful of it. Uh, so good point. I haven't, I've been in New York a few times and I'm kind of like dogs. I'm afraid to go outside. I won't leave my room. <laughs> all, all these human beings and all these cars and this mass of humanity. Maybe I need to try the Boston thing first and, and go hang out with them. A couple of months in Boston <laughs> sounds like a great idea. Well, uh, the, the term socialization is, is a funny one because a lot of people will go to socialize their dog um, and their approaches is, will you pet my dog? Will you pet my dog? Here, give my dog a treat. And kind of back to your, your you know, fire truck um, story, you wouldn't do that with the fire truck. Uh, socialization doesn't necessarily mean interaction. Um, out in, out exposure is a word yeah, I like exposure. to use. Exposure is Existence. a word. Existence. Um, uh, yeah, hey, Tom. I was going to say there's also a very fine line between supporting a fearful dog as opposed to rewarding the fear response. Um, And that's a hard line to walk very often. Uh, People have a lot of difficulty with that. So when I'm walking by, which I've experienced um, in Manhattan, and a truck backfires just as we're passing it, and the dog is shaking in fear and refusing to move forward, you know, to, to bend down and kiss and hug the dog and tell him it's okay very much can be perceived by the dog as rewarding that fear response, and you're actually exacerbating the, exacerbating the fear response. And as I said, it's a fine line between supporting the dog through the fear and rewarding the fear response. So in a case like that, I have seen people pick up the dog and hug it and kiss it and turn around and go the other way and never deal with it. So the dog has basically learned you you respond fearfully and you'll be taken away from what caused the fear. And what I did in a particular situation, it was a shepherd mix, if I remember correctly, I kind of, with an upbeat attitude, you know, said, wow, did you hear that? Let's check that out and kind of con the dog and got it moving a few feet and then offered it a treat for moving a few feet. And I walked back and forth passing that truck maybe three or four times till the dog's attitude was no big deal. And we continued going. So it's, it's so very often that we'll see the inadvertent rewarding of unwanted behavior. And, you know, one of the things that is part of my basic routine 
is what I refer to as the door turmoil routine. Uh, Brian, Kira, I'm sure you've been exposed to the uh, many times when you come to somebody's house and they have a dog and they're standing back from the door several feet and holding the dog on a leash or by the collar and the dog is growling or barking quite aggressively. And so often, what is the owner doing? They're petting the dog, saying, it's okay, it's okay. Um, And as you know, dogs basically read two things. They read body language and they read voice intonation. So petting the dog is rewarding what the dog is doing at the moment, which is being aggressive at the door. The voice is making love to the dog with its sweet sounding, it's okay, further rewarding the unwanted behavior. And as I explained to people, If your four-year-old child was frightened of the ghost at the door on Halloween, you could say to that child, it's okay, it's a little boy under a sheet. But your response to a dog is predicated on two things, your body language and your voice intonation. So the door routine, to me, is a very important routine where I... Um, basically teach the dog or the owners takes me as is probably the case with you Brian it usually takes me um, relatively speaking a few minutes to train the dogs and a few weeks to train the people Um, I teach the the owner to reward the dog for barking at the door it's one of the reasons for the social contract between man and dog, their territoriality, they'll always let you know when someone's at the door. And I tell the guest, just a minute, and the dog goes to a spot, which is back from the door, within sight of the door. He's going to need a visual. And the dog is taught to down and stay, and then you invite the guest in, greet the guest however you want to, and when you say okay, the dog can come forward, sit politely, and earn his second treat, the first being when he went to his spot and sat or laid down. That I refer to as a door turmoil routine, and it makes a huge difference for the rest of the visitation. So when the guest is there, we've already established a tone of cooperation and civility um, as opposed to the turmoil that one sees so often at the door. Tom, uh, on that, do you encounter different uh, responses from the animal per who it is that's walking in? In other words, for instance, uh, when Kira and I do visit people, the dog's reaction to Kira is many times 180 out from me. I'm taller, I'm six foot two, I wear a lot of black, don't ask me why, Uh, but Kira comes in and she's much smaller being a female and the visual perception that the animal takes is different. I'm treated as a threat, she's treated as a friend. I'm the foe, she's the friend. Do you see that as well? Absolutely. It also can be based on the dog's previous experience in life. Um, You know, it could have been somewhat abused or chastised by a big person, by a man. Uh, We have usually a a lower um, 
vocal tone. And, you know, size is, you know, large size is much more threatening. There's no doubt about it. Um, as you probably know, I've, I've often told people do not face the dog head straight on. Uh, approach at a 45-degree angle, maybe bend your knees a little bit. Yeah, dogs are extremely cognizant, um, much more than most people realize, uh, of what's going on around them and what they perceive. So it can be also the experience of the dog um, with men versus women. It can also be with no experience, just a larger person is is more threatening. Um you know, listen, Brian, if you and I are walking down a dark alley uh, and nobody's around and you see somebody all of a sudden approach who's, you know, 6'8 and massively built as opposed to somebody who's 5'3 and a half, uh, our initial response would, would also be, um, would be different. Um, you know, one would appear more threatening and dogs are very, very cognizant of it. As a matter of fact, as I explained to people, there's no domestic animal that denotes body language of a human uh, better than a dog, um, perhaps with the exception of the horse. I speak to a lot of horse people on Martha's <laughs> Vineyard, but, um, I, you know, it's it's very, very meaningful. Um, I, yeah, you know, when a dog sees somebody, they make an immediate assessment, and that's based on their experience or their genetic uh, response to big versus small. Um yeah, but that's very common. I've ha- I've often had to myself act accordingly. You know, not face the dog head on when I read the dog's body language and see the dog's a little insecure. I'm trying to make the dog more insecure. Um, yeah, um, and that's no doubt about it. Uh, it makes a big, big difference. Uh, one's approach to a dog is is very meaningful. Yeah, Amen. I always tell people. They don't have language. And when you don't have language, you're going to depend upon visual signals and touch signals more often than your auditory. Uh, back to your little alleyway thing, by the way, just so you know, Tom, I'm going to be more worried about the five foot three person in that alleyway because if they're in there at the same time, I'm in there and it's dark and scary. Uh, I'm going to watch out for them. <laughs> There's a reason yeah. why <laughs> they, they can right. be in well, there and, and only be that size. I'm going to be worried about them. Uh, <laughs> hey, Tom, uh, can you hang around for a little bit? We're going to take a little bit of a break here and when we come back, we have tons more questions. This has been really, really good. And I just want to dig right into here. your book a little bit deeper. So can you stay right there? You got it. All right, guys, when we come back, we'll be talking again with Tom Shelby. Uh, Tom Shelby is a proven expert. His uh, specialty is search and rescue. As you hear, the guy knows what he's talking about. He's been around the block a few times, no pun intended, with the New York thing there. And when we come back, we'll just dig a little bit deeper in this book. But again, if you guys want to give us a call, you want to ask any questions of Tom, just give us a ring at 866-472-5788. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Sit. Stay. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn. 
changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Taming the Wild and Your Dog. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email if you prefer to brian at tamingthewild.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back. Uh, We have Tom Shelby with us today, the author of Dog Training Diaries, proven expert tips and tricks to live in harmony with your dog. And so far, he's proven exactly that. Hey, Tom, I've got a question for you. We, at the beginning of the show, we talked about walking your dog, uh, about being pulled by the dog. You write in your book, uh, in fact, there's a little introduction there that says, what's the best way to introduce my dog to other dogs when we're out for a walk? Because I see this all the time, and most outcomes aren't favorable. When, when I see a strange dog is suddenly greeting another strange dog. So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, that's an issue that we deal with a great deal. And again, it so much involves the inadvertent rewarding of the um, unwanted behavior or just responding differently. So the example I give... You're standing, you have a dog that's dog aggressive, and as we know, dogs tend to be a lot more dog aggressive when on leash as opposed to off leash, and we can get into that in a minute. So you're standing in a park, and you're facing one direction. Your dog is next to you facing the behind you in the opposite direction, and you see somebody walk into the park with a dog. And your immediate response is to tighten the leash and use the dog's name with anxiety in your voice. So you see somebody walk into the park with a dog. You now tighten the leash, and the dog all of a sudden feels his collar get very tight, and he hears your anxiety as you use the dog's name going, Bowser. Meanwhile, your dog didn't even see the other dog, so he turns around, and what does your dog relate this anxiety and tightened leash to and tightened collar to? To the dog that just walked in. 
Um, so you're, you're actually exacerbating the issue. And as I explain to people very often, when you see another dog, immediately start loving your dog, conning your dog. Look at that. That could be your best buddy. And all of a sudden your dog's looking at you kind of confused with your happiness, which hopefully the dog relates to the dog that's approaching you as opposed to anxiety. And maybe as long as your dog is not offering any kind of aggressive response, you're offering it treats, so it's getting a very positive response to the approaching person with the approaching dog, um, as opposed to creating more of an issue with anxiety and a tight leash and the like. Now, dogs like that also need to be taught the leave it command, which I'm sure you guys are very familiar with. Leave it being anything the dog is focused on. If you tell the dog to leave it, it has to ignore it. That was extremely important in search and rescue. I had I've, I used dogs that I trained to find missing people for 25 years. Uh, or closer to 30, and I've been on a search where a deer crashed through the woods within 10 feet of my dog, and I just said, leave it, and the dog continues working. It can re refer um, to a squirrel. If your dog sees a squirrel, and it's one of the six or seven types of aggression is predatory aggression, where it wants to go after other animals, you say, leave it. It has to ignore the squirrel. It also can refer to the pizza crust that's left on the sidewalk, um, as opposed to the dog snatching it and eating it quickly, um, when he sees the pizza crust, you say, leave it, and the dog ignores it. And that leads me to what I refer to, I kind of coined the expression, the dog god. The dog god sees all, all the time, and doesn't like it when you take my stuff, whether I'm in the room or not. So the example I use for that is if you're in your den and you're watching TV and you have a plate with uh, a sandwich for a snack on the coffee table and your dog would pretend it's not even there while you're in the room. Now you walk out of the room to answer the phone. Is that sandwich on the coffee table safe? And that's the dog god concept, where the dog god sees all, all the time. And what I do is I confront problems always. You don't avoid them. You can't, you can't fix them if you avoid them. So I put a Tupperware container that's very perforated on the coffee table, and I put the hot dog in there, let's say. Uh, the reason I put it in a Tupperware container as opposed to just putting the hot dog on the table, if the dog grabs that hot dog and swallows it very, very quickly, it's self-rewarded. And even if you chastise the dog, it's still got the hot dog and is pretty happy with the situation. So, and as we know, dogs basically live in the moment, so the timing is critical. As the behavior happens, you want to let the dog know you like it or you don't. So I set up a mirror, and I leave the room, and I can look in the mirror, and I can see this perforated container with a hot dog in it. And let's say I have two pots, two um, cast iron or aluminum pots, and I look in the mirror. The dog watch, walks into the room, looks around, sees nobody, and just as the dog's nose touches the container, the perforated container, 
I bang the two parts together. I don't say anything. I don't want this to have to do with me. It's the dog god that doesn't like it when you invade my coffee table with my sandwich. So I slam these two pots together, and the dog basically screws itself through the ceiling in startlement, but relates that startlement to taking the food. I walk into the room a minute later, hey, how you doing, Bowser? Everything good? I had nothing to do with it, but the dog god sees all, all the time, and doesn't like it when you, um, when you take things that you should not be taking. And that, to me, is a very important concept um, so that the dog is well-behaved whether you're in the room or not. I get an ultimate theme um, from you, and the title of part eight of your book is The Prevention, Prevention of Problems. Um, When I read that part of of the Tupperware, I I really enjoyed that. It was a wonderful idea. Um, But uh, we preach prevention here all the time, and, and people who, you know, had one of those really good dogs that they raised that didn't really get into a lot of trouble, they get their next dog, and they think it's going to be just like that, and we, <laughs> we tell them, prevention, 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 while they're a young puppy, set those standards now, don't wait for these problems to happen. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit on, um, to our listeners about the, the importance of prevention? Oh, it's, it is so much easier to prevent than to correct. And, you know, people have said to me, and I think in the older, olden days, if you will, people used to say, uh, even trainers back when, you don't want to start training the dog till it's six months old or ten months old or something like that. I start immediately, um, you know, the prevention makes it so, so much easier. So I don't, you know, being a jumping, you know, I'm not saying you have, it has to be harsh, but when the little puppy jumps on you, you can shrug it off, turn away, have a frown on your face. The dog, listen, as you know, the dog reads your face. Brian, as well as Kira, reads your face. So, um, you know, you say something Kira doesn't like, you take one look at her face and you know she's not happy. The dog knows also. So, and I have people write the word contrast down because training to me is far more rewarding the response you want than correcting the response you don't want. So if a dog jumps and it can be a 12-week-old puppy, and you kind of just turn to the side and shrug it off with a frown on your face as you say off, a split second later, the dog's four feet are on the floor and the unwanted behavior stopped. At that point, and that's the contrast, it behooves the owner to smile and say thank you or good boy or good girl. So the dog just doesn't respond to the off or the correction or the, the displeasure with his behavior, but the pleasure with the behavior when the unwanted behavior has stopped. And I call that contrast. And I tell people always reward the dog. And it doesn't mean you have to drop to your knees and kiss and hug the dog. It can be a smile with, with just the words, a pleasant thank you. Um, it's, it's very, very important. And, and voice intonation is very meaningful. I worked with an actress um, who did 120 shows of Victor Victoria on Broadway and failed to give me voice intonation for about 20 minutes, was making me crazy, at which point I suggested that she 
embarrassed me with what she said to the dog. I said, I want you to curse at the dog, but I want you to have the dog think you're praising the dog. And this lady could indeed act, so I had her saying, oh, you piece of dirt, you're so stupid, you're so ugly, I just hate you. But she said it in a very loving tone, and the dog was very happy with what she said, and I I endeavor to explain to these people, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Um, and start with the prevention immediately. So when the dog starts to chew on the chair leg, redirect it to a toy. Um, maybe spray some bitter apple on it so it gets a negative, in most cases, a negative um, response to putting its mouth on something that you don't want it to put its mouth on. Prevention, you know, Brian, Kira, it is so much easier to prevent than to correct later on. I start training immediately, and then I've been asked quite often, well, when is training done? And my facetious response is, within two weeks after the dog passes away, I, I stop the training. So it, it really never ends because dogs so often, like people, get away very much with what they can. You know, one of my daughters has a very, very intelligent mixed breed. And I just um, I had my wife made up a sign for her that, you know, which we framed that says, you can't tell me what to do. You're not my dog. And my daughter is now feeding this dog. She used to feed it between five and six, but now is now the second meal of the day is being fed at three as the dog has cajoled my daughter into feeding her earlier and earlier. Dogs are very manipulative, get away with what they can, and we need to be cognizant of that and prevent them from really... Um, I used to tell, I remember a lady with a Coton de Tullier um, who gave me a list as long as her arm of all the things the dog would not do. It wouldn't even walk down the two steps into the sunken living room, wouldn't eat dog food, wouldn't be groomed, wouldn't, as long as her arm, the list of it would not do. And I remember thinking to myself, boy, does this dog have this family trained it's a well-trained family, and we've run into that a lot. We just have to retrain. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we, we run into that all the time. Hey, Tom, we're, we're about ready to close our show here. Just want to ask you one question real quick. Back to the doorbell turmoil. Dog jumps on human. They turn. They frown. They ignore. Dog's paws hit the ground. They turn around. The dog jumps. This keeps up. In other words, if ignoring doesn't work, what do you do next? And you just know, be quick, I, you got about 20 seconds. I quote Jane Pryor a lot. Um, reprimands are a necessary part of existence. So perhaps I'd put a leash on the dog and you allow the dog to commit to the jump. When the front feet leave the floor, I might give it a little snap on the leash. I want two or three tags on the collar. It's the chinking sound. A dog's hearing is 16 times superior to ours. And it gets startled, it comes off, and then you're saying good. You could say off, and the moment the dog is off, you go to your contrast, say thank you, good boy, good girl, whatever it may be. The, um, the, it needs to work. If it doesn't work, it's a basic philosophy. If it ain't working, dump it. 
So you need to find what works. That's why I'm a Depends trainer. You're right. There are dogs that will jump repeatedly, especially when you get there in junior high school age, you know, what I refer to fondly as punk age, the six, seven, eight, nine-month-old golden retriever may jump 12 times in a row. You need to correct it after the first or second time so it gets the idea jumping is unpleasant, not jumping is pleasant. There you go. You know, I call it... uh Cost versus benefit. Well, Tom, tell us, where can we find your book? You, it's published, Skyhorse Publishing. You can find it on Amazon. I understand it's in a lot of Barnes & Nobles, Dog Training Diaries. I had a lot of fun. I think uh, many of the, the readers will enjoy it. Uh, they can email me with questions, um, and I'd be happy to respond um, you know, my life revolves around the dogs, and it's the wonderful life, as you and Kira probably know. Hey, Amen, we do. Well, Tom, we want to thank you for, for being on our show today. We really appreciate it. Uh, great information, great tips. And for you listeners out there, next week we're going to talk about danger in the household, why dogs attack children. And they do. 50% of the fatalities that occur in this country occur to children. And you know what's even scarier than that? 50% of those, it was the family dog. So stay tuned for next week. We will be talking about danger in the household. What can we do to prevent, as, as we're talking about prevention today, prevent dog attacks to our children? See you next week. Take care. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join host Brian Bailey again for another edition of Taming the Wild in Your Dog next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your dog's welfare and your life may depend on it.